Well, I thought I'd start out the message this morning with a little bit of audience participation, which means that you must participate or else it's just an audience, right? So I'm hoping that you'll participate this morning as I want to share with you some of Hollywood's greatest movie lines and your participation part is I want you to share with me if you know which movie I'm talking about. Now, I'll I'll warn you that today is family worship, all right? So that means some of the movies that you may be thinking I probably didn't put in here because it's family worship, all right? So know that this is our family-friendly movie line day, all right? So let's start off. Number one, tell me if you know this movie. Show me the money. That was an easy one. Come on, Jerry Maguire. That's right. Okay, you can speak a little louder. I know it's Baptist Church, but it's all right. You can speak up, all right? Carpe diem, seize the day. Dead Poet Society. All right, we'll go a little bit younger here. Houston, we have a problem. All right, kids, this one's for you. Noah, you ready? All right, here we go. To infinity and beyond. Toy Story, that's right, good job. All right, let's keep going. One of my favorite movies, You Can't Handle the Truth. A few good men. That's right. All right. There's no place like home. Wizard of Oz. Oz, That's right. All right. Kids, here's another one for you. Just keep swimming. Finding Dory. That's right. And in my humble yet accurate opinion, um, the most famous movie line of all time, this is for you, Teresa. Luke, I am your father. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Star Wars. Is it stri- is it, well, I don't know Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. Is that right? All right. Well, today we have in our Joseph narrative what I believe one of the most quotable quotes from the entire scene from Joseph. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. We've been working towards this the last seven weeks. This is week eight of our series as we've been going through the life of Joseph. And this is the moment where Joseph is finally ready to reveal his true identity to his brothers. Joseph, he just set up the scene perfectly where last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that he brings his brothers in and he gives them the opportunity to once again forsake their brother, Benjamin, just as they forsook Joseph 20 plus years ago. But this time, the tables are turned a little bit, and uh, Judah steps forward. Not only does Judah admit his guilt, now he's not admitting his guilt for stealing the the, the silver cup because he didn't do that, but he's admitting um, the brothers all of their guilt for what they had done to Joseph and selling him into slavery, but he's also there expressing their, their love for their father, Jacob. In fact, in this impassioned speech that that Judah gave that we read last week in chapter 44, um, Judah talks about Jacob 15 different times. See, God had truly transformed these brothers' hearts. They had repented of their past sins. And Judah now, he actually steps forward and says, I am willing to take the place of my brother Benjamin. Take whatever punishment you are going to give him and place it on me. A little bit of foreshadowing here, for Jesus was from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. And many years later, he would step forward, but he would actually take our punishment, our sin, the wrath of God that we deserved, and he would die in our place to purchase our salvation. Well, 
following Judah's plea for Benjamin's life, Joseph can take it no longer. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 45. The first 13 verses I've called the revelation where Joseph is going to reveal himself. Let's, let's read together the first two verses. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. The brothers here are, are speechless. Now, I want you for a second to put yourself in these brothers' shoes. Maybe I should say we put ourselves in brother's sandals, right? Where they are. Okay, the day before, what had just happened? They had had the feast of all feasts. Joseph had fed them all. Of course, they don't know it's Joseph. And then he sends them on their way with all sorts of food, all sorts of provisions. And as they're making their way back to Canaan, they're stopped by the prime minister steward who accuses them of stealing something from the prime minister. They say, hey, it's not us, but they find it in Benjamin's sack. Of course, it was placed there by Joseph. So now they come back and they, they fear that now their worst fear is about to happen and that they are about to become slaves in Egypt for the rest of their lives. And so now it's at this moment that Judah, he's made his speech, he's made his plea for mercy, and now all that's left is for Joseph to give his verdict. They know the importance of this verdict. Whatever verdict that he gives them, this will be what they have to live with probably for the rest of of their lives. So then when they're, he says, I can't take it anymore. And he asked his servants to leave. And it says that he begins to weep. Now we're not just talking about a tear that shed down his face. It says that he weeps so loudly that those outside of his house can hear him. In fact, he's weeping so loudly that those who are in Pharaoh's court, they can hear him. Again, put yourself in the brother's shoes right now. Don't you think that they're thinking, Man, he's really mad at us. Man, now we're about to get it. And then Joseph burst out with this memorable line in verse 3. He says, I am Joseph. Then he asked one question. Is my father still alive? Understand that this was the worst news that the brothers could have received. Don't think that they thought, oh, we're so relieved. That, no, no, no. There was no relief. There was no, hey, our stress is gone. Now they have even more um, fear and trepidation of what's going to happen. Because now it's not only the prime minister who's accused us of stealing his cup, but now it's our brother whom we sold into slavery. He now is back to get us. And now it's time for us to get our revenge. The brothers are in so much fear that they don't speak for the first 15 verses in chapter 45. In fact, it's not until Joseph verbally demonstrates and he shows his forgiveness to his brothers that he, they actually speak up. Look at the last part of verse 3. After he's asked if his father is well or if he's alive, he says, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And so through Joseph's tears, he looks at his brothers and he sees that they're almost in this sort of paralyzing terror. And he continues in verse 4. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. 
And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. As if they needed reminding, right? Kind of little, hey, remember that time? You th- hey, I'm Joseph. You put me in slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to what? Preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but who? But God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Notice here in that speech that Joseph gives his brothers who are are, are just terrified of what's going to take place. There isn't a hint of payback from Joseph, is there? The only thing that we see from Joseph here is encouragement. Joseph had clearly already forgiven his brothers. We see that here. That It's apparent there. And be careful. I want to point out that while he had forgiven his brothers, nowhere in this chapter do we see that Joseph is going to minimize the sin that they had done against him. Joseph clearly identifies what they had done as sinful. But here's what he does. is He understands that forgiveness doesn't seek to minimize sin. Forgiveness doesn't say, hey, the sin never happened, and I'm going I'm to act as if the consequences are gone. No, forgiveness doesn't seek to minimize sin. Instead, forgiveness seeks to counteract sin. In this statement, Joseph isn't overlooking his brother's guilt. The guilt is real. But instead, what Joseph chooses to do is he chooses to look to a higher purpose. Yes, the brothers, they're responsible for this sinful action which they had done to him, which hurt, which caused him real pain and harm. But God had a purpose that even surpassed the brothers' jealousy that they were acting upon him. Joseph, in this incredible instance, he is looking beyond the events that occurred to him, and he looks deeper to show how God's hand had been in everything that had happened. In fact, Joseph references God four times in this, in this passage here, in verse, uh, verses 5, 7, 8, and 9. See, Joseph understood that in every episode of his life, even in every episode of his brother's life, that they were all still under the direct rule of God. And because he understood that God was sovereign, because he understood that God had never left his throne, that God was still in control, in this moment when he should and he could have in his flesh said, now I'm going to get you back, what is he doing? He's seeking to comfort his brothers. Why? Because remember in chapter 44, they had already repented of their sins. Joseph, in essence, he's telling his brothers, look, These sins that you hurled against me, that you used to cause me harm, God had an even greater purpose. You could not stop God's plan. And God's plan was for me to be used to save many lives, not only many lives, but God is going to use what you were trying to do to bring me harm. And now God is going to save our family through what just takes place. And before we move to the next section of Scripture, I want you to see that there's this reconciliation that occurs between Joseph and his brothers. But that reconciliation, it's only able to happen because of two things. 
The first thing that had to happen for this reconciliation we saw last week was the brother's admission of guilt. They admit that they're guilty and they repent of their sins. But then the second thing that we see today that brings them together is Joseph's willingness to forgive his brothers. Now, how is he able to forgive his brothers? Joseph is only able to forgive because he sees past his own hurt. He sees past the damage that was caused to him in his own life, and he looks past that, and he sees how God is working out something much greater than this small life of his own life, how God has this providential plan, and Joseph knows I am but a mere role in what God is accomplishing here. And so finally, when he's finished trying to to reassure his brothers, hey, I'm not going to get back at you. There's no payback here. There's no retaliation. Then we see that he tells in verses 9 through 13, we're not going to read those verses. He tells his brothers, hey, go back home, go get dad, come back to Egypt, and we're going to have a great time. We're all going to live here. And then in verses 14 and 15, the second section, just those two verses, we see this emotional reconciliation that takes place. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. It says, then he, Joseph, fell upon Benjamin's neck, remember his one full brother, and wept. And what did Benjamin do in return? Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with them. How many brothers does Joseph reconcile with? All of them, Right? He hugs and kisses each and every one of them. I find it interesting that Benjamin is the only one who returns with the same type of reaction that Joseph did. Joseph is weeping, and what does Benjamin do? He weeps, and the rest of them do what? Talks with them. We'll cut him a little slack. Don't you think they're still kind of shell-shocked about all that had just taken place? The important thing that I think Moses, the author of this uh, book, wants us to get is that reconciliation took place because of repentance and because of forgiveness that was offered. And then the third section we see in verses 16 through 24, provisions. In verses 16 through 20, Pharaoh, he hears about Joseph being reunited with his brothers. And Pharaoh, who loved Joseph because of all the benefit that he received as a result of God blessing Joseph, he says, hey, Go tell your brothers to go back home, travel light, because you're not going to need much when you come back, and I'm going to have your family come and live here, and they are going to live in the best part of the land. In essence, Pharaoh kind of one-ups Joseph. Joseph tells his family, come back, and I'll give you a good part of the land. But Pharaoh says, no, I want to give you the best part of the land. Then, before he sends them on the way, listen to how Joseph instructs them in verses 21 through 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. I always wonder, were those pistachio nuts in there? Probably not, right? And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and they departed. He said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Now, why did they need a change of clothes? What did they do when they thought it was Benjamin? They tore their clothes in distress. So now he's given them clothes. But i got to stop here for a second. 
Don't you find it ironic that here Joseph is giving his brothers what? Clothes? Now, as the prime minister of Egypt, I don't think he was just giving him his leftovers. I don't think he gave him kind of what, hey, here's what the Salvation Army has. You can have these. I happen to believe he probably gave him some of the most expensive, finest clothes than all of Egypt. And what was the cause of the brother's hatred towards Joseph in the beginning? An article of clothing, a multicolored cloak. Friends, only God could write the story, couldn't he? And how it's all coming back around here. And then, he, and then he says, by the way, guys, when you leave, don't argue, don't fight. Hey, when there's 11 brothers involved, it's a miracle if fighting doesn't happen, right? If there were 11 brothers and you were to go from here to Mihaw, you'd fight over which Mexican restaurant you're going to go to, right? I mean, he says, look, I know you're going to fight, but just stop it. Please don't, don't fight it as you go. Then we see in the last few verses, in verses 25 through 28, there's a revival that takes place. When they return to Canaan, they actually have to convince their father, Jacob, that, that Joseph is truly alive. This is what it says. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. Why? For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Notice that phrase there. And his heart became numb for he didn't believe them. How could he believe them? He had been living with this lie for 20 years. For 20 years, his sons had allowed him to believe that his son was dead. Day after day, after week, after month, after year, they looked at him in the eye and they never told him, by the way, Joseph probably is still alive. We've talked about this time and time again. Forgiveness, absolutely. But there are still consequences to sin and dishonesty. And one of the consequences was the fact that their father could not even believe or trust their son. But then when they tell them, hey, listen, hear the words of Joseph. Look at the wagons. Look at all of the blessings, the provisions that have been sent. This is just a foretaste of what's waiting for you ahead when you get to Egypt. Finally, he says, it's enough. It's enough. I believe you. Now let's go. I must see him before I die. Now what I want to do in our remaining few moments together this morning is I want us to look at a, a biblical theme that is kind of woven all throughout chapter 45. If the key word in chapter 44 was repentance, and we saw that, how the brothers repented of their sin, the key word in chapter 45 would clearly be forgiveness. Once again, in order for this reconciliation to take place, both of these elements had to occur. First, the brothers had to repent of their sin. And then secondly, Joseph must extend this gift of forgiveness. Sometimes I'm afraid that even 
as followers of Jesus, that we don't have a full or an accurate picture of what forgiveness truly is. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a conscious decision on the part of the offended person to release the offender from the penalty and the guilt of the offense committed. I want to keep that up there. I want to go through this for a minute. See, forgiveness is a conscious decision. It's not just something that happens. It has to be something that you decide, I am going to make this step and I'm going to forgive them. Who does forgiveness come from? That next part, it comes from the person who is offended. Not from the offender, but the offended has to say, I'm going to make this conscious decision that I'm going to forgive them. And what does that mean? There's two parts at the very end. I'm going to release you. You've hurt me. You've caused me damage. But I'm releasing you not only from the penalty, but also from the guilt from which you have done to me. That's not easy to do. See, forgiveness, it's a recognition that pain was caused by a person or from other people. Understand that when I'm recognizing that you caused me pain, I'm recognizing, I'm acknowledging that you harmed me. This is the opposite from just overlooking it. It's not just saying, well, I'll just turn the other way and act as if, no, no, no. You're acknowledging you hurt me. And I admit, I acknowledge there is pain in my life because of what you have done to me. But then forgiveness is also It's a willingness to no longer hold the person, here's the key word, responsible for the pain. Can't take the pain away, but I'm no longer going to hold you responsible for that pain. And finally, forgiveness is a gift of kindness. It's a gift of kindness, understand, which the offender does not deserve. Forgiveness isn't free. Forgiveness comes at a costly price. And the one who pays the price is the one who was offended. But at the same time, understand that forgiveness is not something that's earned. If you have to do something in order to be forgiven by someone, you're not given the gift of forgiveness. You just paid a debt. You can't earn someone's forgiveness. It has to be a gift that they are going to give to you. But at the same time, forgiveness is not the removal of all negative consequences of that sinful action. It's not as if we can take an eraser and say, oh, it's like it never happened and now all my pain. No, no, it's not saying the pain is gone. You still admit that pain is there, but you're removing the guilt from that person. Let's get practical here. What does it mean in looking at God's word for us to forgive someone. I want you to write these four things down as we close. Four things that biblical forgiveness looks like. Number one, you acknowledge that you have sinned and be specific when you're asking for someone's forgiveness. Let the person that you've offended, let them know that you're acknowledging that you've made mistakes. You don't just simply say, hey, I'm sorry, but be specific in what you are apologizing for. Show the person, hey, I've really thought about the pain and harm that I've caused you. Once you've acknowledged it, the second step is that you acknowledge the harm that you've caused the person. I think this may be the hardest part. This really takes us humbling ourselves because you're taking that next step and you're not just saying, hey, I know that I've sinned against you, 
But then you're saying, I know that my sin has caused you harm. I recognize that there were negative consequences that you had to endure because of the mistakes that I enacted upon you. Tell them how I know it was against God's commands. It was against what my Savior has taught me to do. And then third, what we talked about last week, you demonstrate, demonstrate genuine repentance. You express, hey, this is how I should have responded. And by the way, the next time under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, I hope that this is how I will respond. I'm repenting. I'm turning from my mistake. I acknowledge it. I'm acknowledging your pain. And here's what I should have done. And here's what I hope to do next time. And fourth and finally, you ask for their forgiveness. We try to do this in our family. We don't always do it perfectly. We always say, you can't just say you're sorry. The next step is you say, I'm sorry. And then you say, will you what? Forgive me. Asking forgiveness, it allows both you and the person you've offended to show that your genuine desire is for reconciliation to occur. And when you ask for the other person's forgiveness that you've offended, what you're actually doing is you're inviting that person to come alongside you and to give you the gift of forgiveness. On Wednesday night, June 15th, 2015, a young man by the name of Dylan Roof entered into a prayer meeting at a sanctuary of the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He was the only white male in this congregation of an African-American congregation in which there were 12 that night. The congregation, they welcomed him in and they loved him. He was there for a little over an hour. And again, because it's children's worship, I won't go into the detail of what occurred, but we know that that night, nine people were killed in the midst of that um, prayer meeting in Charleston, South Carolina. I want to show you a video of how some of these family members responded the first time they saw Dylan Roof, the man who had murdered their family member. This is just a few weeks after this had happened. They're, they're in trial, and he is appearing to him in front of a video screen. And this is what happened. The attack on the Mother Emanuel AME Church was not just a murder of nine African-American worshipers. Like all terrorist attacks, it was an effort to send a message to use violence to sow hate. The shooter left one person alive to bear witness to what he had done. But two days later, at his bond hearing, members of the victim's family stood and one after the other forgave the alleged murderer and prayed for him. Took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. Although my grandfather and the other victims died, at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they, they lived in love and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. I'm very angry. But one thing the pain has always joined in and our family with is that she taught me that we are 
the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. This is what it looks like to bear witness, to testify. The shooter took life, but he also tried to steal the faith that gives the community its strength. But that cannot be taken. Those calls for forgiveness proved that. They're a tribute to those nine victims and the power of the faith that brought them together on a Wednesday night in June to pray. How in the world could those family members forgive that man? It's nothing short of astounding what took place there. Friends, let's recognize that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is long and it's difficult. Forgiveness does not come cheaply or easily. It always comes at a great expense and the expense is always at the person who was wronged. Forgiveness is not natural. What's natural? Let's seek revenge. You did this to me, now I'm going to make sure you suffer even worse. That's why when we see stories like the one we just witnessed, we're astounded that they're ever even able to forgive someone. But forgiveness is long and difficult. You think it was easy for Joseph to forgive his brothers? You think it was easy for those family members to forgive Dylan Roof? Not a chance. But how is it that we are able to forgive other people? Here's what Paul says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. The only way that we are able to forgive other people as followers of Jesus is to remind ourselves what God has forgiven us from. When we recognize that God has forgiven us from our sins, our sins that deserve eternal separation from him, when we reflect, God, if you can forgive me from that, and if you can reconcile me back to yourself, it is then and only then that we have the ability to forgive others. See, the more aware that we are of our own sinfulness, the more aware we are of the need that we have for forgiveness that we have received, it is then and only then that we see that forgiveness is easier to extend to others. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you a simple question. Is there someone in your life that you need to ask for their forgiveness? You've wronged them, you've hurt them, and you need to go to them and ask for their forgiveness. Right now in the quiet of this moment, if God puts a name on your heart, will you commit right now that God, I'll be faithful, I will follow through and extend forgiveness to that person? Perhaps you're here this morning and there's someone in your life that you, you haven't forgiven them. They've hurt you. 
They've caused harm in your life and you're holding on to that because you can't let go of the pain that they have caused you. Maybe you need to forgive someone that you see on a daily basis. Maybe that person lives with you. Maybe that person works with you. Maybe it's a person you go to school with and you're going to see on a regular basis. Perhaps the person that you need to forgive isn't even alive anymore. They've hurt you. They've caused so much damage that you can't even explain how much damage they've done to you. And now they're gone and you are left to pick up the pieces. Or perhaps the person you need to forgive right now is yourself. You've been holding on to that pain and bitterness and you think that you need to pay a price and you today need to know that God has forgiven you and you can forgive yourself. Listen to me. Forgiveness does not take away the consequences. Forgiveness doesn't take away all of the hurt in your life. But here's what forgiveness does do. It frees up your heart. It frees up your life to be used fully for God instead of holding on to this bitterness in your life. So ask God right now in this moment to reveal his desire for you. He's got so much in store for your life, but if we hold on to this bitterness in our life, we are holding back what he wants to do in and through our lives. So right now, commit to him. Whatever decision he's told you that you want to make every single day, however long you've got left on this earth, to count for eternity, to stop living in the past, to stop living in the guilt, to stop living with the the, the unforgiveness and the bitterness in your heart and say, God, from today forward, I want to give everything I have to you. I want to get rid of all of the past so that I can hold and cling to you, that I can be used fully for your kingdom. God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. We ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives and that you would give us the ability that that quite honestly, we don't even know if we can do it ourselves, that we don't want to extend forgiveness, that we don't want to ask forgiveness because we've got pride in our hearts. But would you break down that sense of pride and would you say, God, would because of what you have forgiven us from, because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your forgiveness, we will extend the same gift of forgiveness to others. We don't know how much longer we have left on this earth. We are not promised tomorrow. Would we not waste one single moment holding on to the resentment of the past? But God, we claim that today we want to make our lives count for eternity. Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and our lives. Convict us of our our sin that we need to confess before you and allow us to live in the freedom the freedom that was purchased for us on the cross of Calvary so that we can walk in victory that you have given to us. May we not forsake the gift of forgiveness you have given us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning?
And would we all make this commitment that we are going to follow Jesus, that we're going to keep the cross in front of us, the world's behind us. We don't have time to look back. We've got to look forward to what he has in store for us. If you have a decision to be made public, I'll be down front. But for the rest of us, would we use this time to say, God, I want to live for you. Let's sing together.